Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a wonderful show for you this evening. The legendary aircraft designer Bert Rutan is here, and we're going to hear about his life, the aircraft, so many different things that have literally changed general aviation as we know it. So I cannot wait to get Bert on the show here and uh, then tap all of you hear from him. Before we get started, just a few things. First of all, fall flying is in full swing and so many amazing events can be found on socialflight.com and the free social flight apps for Apple and Android devices. We have just tens of thousands of events. There's so many cool things going on. There are pumpkin drops happening around the country. There's a pie-in, fly-in happening near here. There are just, uh, just check it out. You can see all the fun flying events happening all over to get you out there and flying, which is our mission to support general aviation. And while you're doing that, please join the Fly to Win Challenge. We just gave away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset to William Dubois of Santa Rosa, New Mexico. And uh, in addition now, we have a new Fly to Win Challenge period that just started, and we're gonna be giving away a Lightspeed Delta Zulu headset on December 1st. That's the Delta Zulu with carbon monoxide detection, uh, canary uh, uh, technology that lets you uh, look for leaks and carbon monoxide, things like that. And also the hearing acuity program that customizes the way that your hearing works. So very, very cool stuff. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Avidyne. Avidyne has some of the most amazing avionics. We fly behind them in the Bonanza as well as what we're equipping this T-51D Mustang project here behind me. They're IFP 440, 540, and uh, uh, the uh, 440, 540, and 550 are just truly amazing platforms uh, that I just absolutely love to fly behind. I'm going to show you a couple things that I love about that really quickly here. Um, first of all, you know, the, one of the best things is that you can interface with the IFT series any way that you want. There's hard buttons, there's touchscreen, there's a bunch of different things. And I personally use the keyboard all the time, which is mounted on the yoke. It's just uh, enabled with Bluetooth. You can just type in a complete flight plan without a break and it'll just go right into the system. It makes IFR navigation, really complex routes, extremely easy to do. Um, it has synthetic vision on the 550 series that's built in. And uh, also in the Mustang, we're doing it with a forward camera that will uh, look forward there and show everything. And that's uh, another feature that's available as an option on those systems. So big thank you to Avidyne for their amazing products and supporting Social Flight, making all of this possible. Now to tonight's guest. Nearly 50 years ago, Bert Rutan turned the experimental aircraft community on its head with the Very Vigan, a two-seat pusher aircraft with a canard hanging out in front. The canard would become synonymous with Rutan aircraft, such as the Long Easy, that literally revolutionized aviation with some of the most efficient and unique aircraft to grace the skies and fill the Oshkosh aircraft parking areas year after year. 
Burt's many contributions of home builders didn't just include aircraft designs themselves, but they also included innovative construction techniques that made it possible for people to build these aircraft at home without complex molds or tooling. That's what really made the difference. Now, not content with remaining in the GA realm, Burt went on to design iconic business aircraft such as the Beach Starship, as well as mission-specific, record-setting aircraft that included the all-around-the-world flying Rutan Voyager, high-altitude Proteus communications platform, and the Global Flyer. In 2004, he broke the final frontier with back-to-back -back flights of Spaceship One, which became the first privately built, flown, and funded manned craft to reach space. I'm going to bring him on the show now. Please welcome to Social Flight Live, the legendary Bert Brutan. How are you doing, Bert? I'm doing great. You're, look, you're <laughs> looking good, uh, Jeff. <laughs> well, I, thank you so I, much I for taking time out of your evening. Probably, yeah. Okay. I am. I'm, I'm grateful for you taking time out of your evening to join us here on the show, and uh, I am extremely conscious that. There is so much to talk about in your life and career. There's just simply no way we're going to make it into one one-hour show. But I want to start with something that is uh, that kind of goes back to when you first started, kind of designing aircraft, and and had this unique perspective of doing it differently, do looking at everything differently than what all the general aviation aircraft were like at the time. Tell me a little bit about how you got started. Well, I got started as a child. Uh, I uh, was uh, was brought up in a Seventh-day Adventist home, and so I couldn't do the sports at school. And, and uh, uh, it wasn't until I was a sophomore in high school that I went to public schools. Uh, so my... I, I looked for something to do that was challenging uh, at a very early age. And that is I, uh, when my brother, who's five years older, would crash a model airplane, I'd pick up the balsa wood pieces and glue them together into something else and fly them. Uh, so uh, very quickly, by the time I was 12 or 13, I was uh, actually, uh, doing competitions. Uh, I, the local hobby store guy would drive me to the San Francisco Bay Area and I'd come back with trophies and uh, uh, control line model airplane competitions. So um, I think because of my, the thrill of winning things and even beating the adults on this technology or this, this fun stuff, uh, I knew right away I didn't want to do what my dad did. He was a dentist, and uh, I, it didn't seem like a good thing to charge someone to give them pain. So I, uh, I, I knew right away that I wanted to be an airplane designer. And that was reinforced uh, when I was in my backyard uh, flying a little airplane, a little model airplane, and two B-36 bombers flew right over my house. Now, they weren't pressurized, so they, they're low altitude. And the sound of, of uh, those propeller blades, I've forgotten how many there are, but a bunch, 
if you heard it today, you would be mesmerized by it. So that, that really, I believe, is a time when I knew that I wanted to do nothing else uh, but design airplanes. Wow. Now, there's, there's one thing to just to design aircraft in an evolutionary way, which there's thousands of aircraft designers out there that do every day and just refine things that look traditional. But clearly, you are known for striking out in a very, very different way, focusing on canards, focusing on looking at problems differently. Did that start at the model aircraft part back then, or, or is there some point at which you remember looking at problems and solving them from a completely different angle? Well, I like to, when, when, when the subject comes up, I like to think of uh, the three C's. First one is curiosity. And curiosity is the reason that when I had an option on a new design, a new requirement, uh, I would never pick the one that was uh, conventional. Uh, to me, that was boring. I was curious to find if something else very unusual might be better. The best example of that is my boomerang, which is my very best work in general aviation. This is a very unusual looking airplane, but it's the most efficient, longest range, uh, the, uh, it's the safest airplane there is because it doesn't, um, it doesn't have an engine out uh, failure uh, uh, process. In fact, you can fly it single engine, even at full aft stick, minimum speed, while you have your feet on the floor, not even touching the rudder pedals. So that's, that's the most significant uh, thing that I use as an example to say, I tried something really different when I wanted to build a, a twin that was more efficient than my Defiant, which I had mm -hmm. most of my flying time in. Uh, so the second the other two is creativity. You know, a lot of people are creative. Uh, a huge amount of people are very creative. Uh, but they generally, if they're trying uh, things that are different and looking for a milestone, uh, they usually fail uh, to get it funded so it could be built and flight tested. Um, and uh, so the third C I call courage, and that is the courage to ask someone like Paul Allen or Richard Branson or, or you know, any, anyone really, or, or to ask uh, Lockheed, uh, can... Uh, uh, and and it takes my courage to ask them to try something that may not work. Uh, a little bit like Musk, he did things that may not work. Mm. <laughs> that's why he's that's why he launches almost all of the payload to orbit. He he, he tried something that was seemingly impossible. And uh, you also need the courage of the folk that are funding it. And if your customer, again, sometimes it's me, if your customer has curiosity and has courage, you can use your own creativity and do something fantastic. And uh, I think history will show that, uh, that uh, the two projects that I'm mostly known for, 
the Voyager flight in 1986, a nine-day nine around-the-world non-refuel flight. And also, of course, the three uh, uh, suborbital space flights that we did that were non-government. Uh, non, you know, government didn't even know they were going on because that program was covert for the first two of its three and a half years. Um, I think the more significant thing might be that I'm working now on a design and hopefully it'll get built uh, and it will be the 50th manned research airplane that I was either designed or at least did preliminary designed and had my two, one of my two companies build it and do manned flight testing. So that's, wow. that's my goal right now is to is to not go out with just 49, but uh, this nice round number of, of 50. So that keeps me excited now. Uh, I, I would be very bored uh, in retirement right now if I, if I didn't have in front of me a challenge uh, to try something. Uh, uh, and again, both of these designs I'm working on, uh, they are extremely unusual. And what can you tell me about this, that project? It's because I, I'm curious to see if this will work. Are there any details that you can, you can let people in on on the most recent 50th project? You know, when I talk about something in the future, uh, people seem to think that they have a right to know everything about it. <laughs> and I think the reason is, is that, you know, uh, generally people that have a new airplane project, they'll build a mock-up and have a press conference and they'll tell you how fast it'll go, right? And they haven't even started building the tooling for it yet. Well, look back at, at my 50 some years and you'll find that um, uh, the majority of those airplanes you didn't even know about them until they had flown mm. okay and i don't want any help with these two so uh it's it's closely held and uh, we have a covert place to fly up here in north idaho so I don't, I don't have to like reveal it like we had to reveal Spaceship One because a lot of people are around the Mojave Airport. Well, up here in North Idaho, we, we, have, uh, we have runways that are in forests uh, owned by friends. <laughs> so if this thing doesn't work, uh, I won't be that embarrassed by it because you may not know much about it. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, uh, I am embarrassed because I, I talked too early on on my 49th airplane, the, the Ski Gull. Yeah, the Ski Gull certainly gets a lot of uh, questions. And before the show, we certainly got a lot about that. But before we go forward into some of those, I'd like to understand when did you first, uh, I guess, really become interested in the efficiency of, of canard aircraft? That seems to have been, of course, a signature of just about everything that you've done. I was, uh, oh, I, by the way, I have a chapter about this. Uh, go to Brab, which is BertRutan.com, and click on B-R-A-B, Brab, and read chapter 17. 
that chapter describes in detail the answer to the question that you just just asked uh, the the evolution of my interest in in airplanes and the evolution of my interest in canard airplanes and and uh, and everything that I did getting there uh, you know so um, the short answer to it uh, ask it again so I'll be sure it's specific answer um, let us know when you first became interested in canards as a foundation for your design and and okay. how that kind of carried through i didn't do i didn't do uh canards as model airplanes when i was a kid or or even in high school i didn't do anything canard but uh when i got to college um i i was in college at cal poly from 1961 until 65 when, when i got a with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering. Um, during that time, the Swedish uh, Swedish uh, government, uh, they, they didn't fly it then, but they announced and showed the details of an air, a future airplane called the, the Viggen. And it was, uh, for its time, it became the most advanced fighter airplane in the world in that it could operate in a short takeoff and landing mode because they operated off of roads because their their airports would be the first thing they'd lose if the if the commies came over the line right uh, so it was uh, s2ll it was supersonic it also had some phenomenal uh things that i was fascinated by and that is it had uh, natural stall limiting. Mm. Uh, you don't need a computer to keep it from stalling. Keep in mind, in those days, this was before the F-16. You didn't have computers uh, to make the airplane fly right. You had to have good aerodynamics, not just to make it fly well, but for example, in the case of the F-4, where I did the spin program, um, that airplane uh, could get into a flat spin and the flat spin was always uh, uh, had had ejections where you jump out of it and lose the airplane because uh, actually I was uh, myself and Jerry Gentry in 1968 or 69 we were the only ones that were ever in a flat spin in an F4 Phantom followed by a landing on a runway. Uh, really? we, well, we had a we have a more sophisticated uh, spin anti spin shoot or spin recovery parachute than the Navy had on theirs. Uh, that one didn't work and it crashed. But uh, we got in a flat spin. I was in the back seat, and um, we um, uh, started at uh, about forty thousand feet, as I recall. I have all the data. I'm going to publish this data too, by the way, in Brab. Uh, and um, the spin shoot worked, and uh, we landed back on Edwards Runway. And wow. we had so much confidence that now we had a safe recovery from uh, the thing that was uh, that was killing, a, uh, or not really killing, because you have ejection seats. But it was uh, there were 61 airplane accidents with F4 phantoms by the air force 61 accidents that didn't have bullet holes in them mm. 
you lost 61 airplanes because of shitty flying qualities, bottom mm. line. Shitty mainly because they tried to make a bomber out of the Navy's interceptor. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So anyway, that, uh, uh, does that answer your question? Yeah. So the Vigan basically was your inspiration. It was. It was. The Vigan was. And I was so lucky that I decided not to go into Apollo program like everybody did. Remember, I graduated from college halfway between Yuri Gagarin's first band space flight and the moon landing, 1965, right halfway between. And um, the, you know, they, they were hiring non-engineers and teaching them engineering to try to get to the moon. You know, that, that challenge was just crazy. We go yeah. to the moon, right? Um, well, I decided to do, uh, to take my lowest paying job. Uh, my salary was $7,070 per year and be a government worker that flight tests uh, Air Force airplanes. And uh, boy, it was the best decision I ever made because when you're in testing an airplane when it's new and you always have to change things to make it okay or to make it better, uh, that's the best training uh, for someone who wants to be uh, an airplane designer. Mm. That's fascinating. So clearly oh, oh, there's- oh, The thing I was getting at, uh, within the first week or two, after I left my college and went to Edwards to take up this new job of flight tests, uh, I went from Edwards Air Force Base over to Plant 4 in Palmdale, uh, where the B-70 was built. And I watched a first flight of a B-70. And you could get real close to the runway there on the south uh, southeast side. And I watched this B-70 take off and just you know, like this, and then it showed us that beautiful plan form. Wow. And then within a year or two, I was in the backseat of an F-4 Phantom, uh, number two for takeoff, and number one was a B-70. That's amazing. We were sitting really close to it, and it ran up its engines one by one all either six or eight of these big engines went into afterburner and we had to lower the canopies on the on the uh, uh, phantom because it was just it was shaking it was hot and we were concerned about you know getting uh, immediate sunburn or something so so we lowered the canopies and then it started its roll b70 you don't see much of it uh, on the straight end view. Let me get the straight end view. And it rolled a long way down the runway, and then you saw this gorgeous plan form of a B-70. Wow. If you don't know what a B-70 looks like, uh, well, go to the Air Force Museum in Dayton. Uh, yeah. That's amazing. And so now, before, so, the, so clearly the name Vigan showed up in your very Vigan design. That you still did while you were with Beatty. So tell me a little bit about your experience. What, I assume that working at Beatty was your, was your first well, kind of tone uh, During work. college, I built model airplanes of 
canard airplanes, ra radio control, uh, a couple of radio control models of canards. And I was fascinated by, could I, on a light plane, instead of what the Swedes are doing with a fighter, could I make an airplane have natural stall limiting? Because getting too slow on that turn to final uh, and having a departure there was, was the biggest killer in general aviation. So it was a safety thing that really drove me. I says, man, I, if I could make an airplane have natural stall limiting, that would do more than anything else to lower the accident or fatal accident rate of general aviation airplanes. So that, you know, that's, that's a noble goal, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, um, I, I, I tested, um, a tiny little model that was only six inch wingspan in, in, uh, I had to, I had to rebuild the wind tunnel at Cal Poly to get, to get it running. <laughs> And I, I tested it there, and then I built a radio control model, a large one, and tested that. And uh, I think one of the reasons that I was so fascinated to go to Edwards uh, was not just the thing I talked about two minutes ago, but uh, uh, the fact that I would be up and close to the B-70. Mm. That you know, we sense. called we called the B at Edwards. We called the the B seventy the savior. Really, are you familiar with why we would call it the savior? Uh, I can only guess. Tell me. Well, we, we didn't get a video of it at the time, but I did a reenactment of it in Dayton under the B seventy uh, recently. Uh, the B seventy was put in a hangar. Um, and they specially made it with, with instead of one big door for the tail, there were two because it had two big tails. And uh, in those days, uh, they'd, they'd build um, uh, house trailers and put them together for the engineers just outside the hangar or sometimes build a whole new building on the hangar. Well, B-70 sit really high off the ground and uh, it wouldn't take up any room in the hangar to put the engineering and flight test pilots and conference rooms and all of that just right inside the hangar. So uh, someone who uh, hadn't seen the B-70, you know, seen just maybe pictures of it, which absolutely uh, more than any other airplane doesn't give it justice. You'd go through a door to get into the hangar, which is a standard door like you have in a house. And you'd walk through a, a long ways. In other words, you're in the hangar, but you can't see the airplane. But you walk through clear to the end of this engineering and test pilot conference room area. And you go through another door that's no, no bigger than the door of your, of, your, um, uh, of your house. And you open that door, and right in front of you, at close range is the nose wheel. <laughs> you don't see the airplane, you see this nose wheel. And you look up like this, and you see these big square supersonic inlets, and you turn to the right and you see this 
beautiful serpentine nose. Oh, you've got a picture up, right? And the yes. canard and you know, the nose wheel is back there right under the inlets. It's not up in the nose. And you're, you're, the effect that it has, that it had on me and that it had on nearly everyone who saw it for the first time walking out of that little door was Jesus Christ. <laughs> So that's why we call the B-70 the savior. That's funny. <laughs> that's, a true, that's a true story. That's really, really funny. You know, the, the people who do flight tests, they have different names for airplanes. Some of them are not politically correct. And, you know, nowadays you never learn what they are, but uh, they, they don't, they don't, they don't, you know, the, the uh, what was the, um, the airplane, it was called the Aardvark. Yes, uh, that wasn't its official name, right? And the uh, the B fifty two is called Buff. Yep, which is not big, ugly, fat fella. <laughs> oh, there's a nose gear. Uh, can your can your viewers see this? Yes. Okay, that that door is right in front of that of that uh, nose wheel. But anyway, when you're in Dayton, Ohio, go to the best museum in the world. Plan to be there at least four days. Yep. And walk up to the nose gear of the B-70 and pretend that you hadn't seen it and look up. And you might say, Jesus Christ. <laughs> because the B-70 was absolutely huge. Wow. So uh, tell me a little bit about you were at you're at BD at the time, if I were if I have it correct, and and that's when you first started working on your version of the Vigan, or based on that inspiration, and you've got what's shown right here. Uh, no, that's not quite right. I started building the very Vigan in my garage in 19. Uh, probably 62 or 63 in Lancaster, California. That was, that was, uh, that was while I, oh, excuse me, I'm wrong on the date. Uh, probably 66 or 67, mm -hmm. right in the middle of my seven years at Edwards Air Force Base. Oh, okay. I had designed this airplane because keep in mind at work, I had to sit in the back seat. And I didn't, I didn't get to fly, you know, once in a while, they'd let you fly for a while, but, but, uh, you know, I had to turn on switches and cameras and write down notes and all this. And then, and once in a while, I'll pull out this plastic bag and throw up in it, you know, and, <laughs> and kind of stick it underneath and hold it by the G suit. And then, uh, and the pilot, he, he knew what was happening. So, when he'd pull off at midfield at Edwards and he didn't pull off in the middle of the taxiway, he'd always pull out real near the end of it. So you could, you could throw, throw your, your, uh, your barf bag uh, out. <laughs> uh, uh, sorry about going around the barn there, but, but no, I built the very big one and um, I had it essentially ready to fly, but not quite. When I decided to take a year off, a sabbatical. I definitely come back because I, I I could get all my sick leave uh, uh, back if I come back within a year. I was going to only quit for a year, 
at Edwards Air Force Base and come back because I had so much fun. I, I joined the local EAA chapter and I, I got into home building and I was building my own home built. Yeah, a pretty unusual one. <laughs> and, very. Uh, uh, the very big one. Oh, by the way, you mentioned the, the 50 years. It's actually 51 and a half years ago wow. that, the, that the very big one made its first flight. Uh, wow. We had a big party in Mojave uh, a few years ago. Uh, let's see, it was 2019. Uh, to celebrate the 40th year of the first flight of the Long Easy. But I, for some reason, I forgot about the very big and being 50. It had been a small, it'd be a small party because not too many people have very big ones. They're, they're really hard to build. Um, little, you little can see mine at the EAA Museum in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Wow. This is a uh, here. Here's an, an image that I had come across of a oh. number of your designs. Yes, this is breathtaking. Take me through this. Well, when you plan to put six airplanes in a formation, uh, your biggest problem is finding six people who are checked out to fly all these unusual airplanes and have adequate formation skills. Now, this doesn't look like a Blue Angels formation when, they're, when their wingtips are just a few feet apart, right? So the spacing on this was determined by the worst, excuse me, the, the most limited experience that the pilot had flying formation. And then everybody else uh, flew the same the same, uh, you know, to make it nice and symmetrical, make it look good. Uh, this picture was taken by a, a Russian aerobatic airplane that did a big roll over and he shot straight up from the airplane down onto the formation. Uh, this is an actual picture of a formation of the very big and the very easy, the long easy, the catbird, the defiant, and the boomerang. It's the first time that these airplanes had flown together. Uh, and it's, of course, a, really a neat picture, right? In it's fact, it's so neat that I did something that made them mad. I took my drone. Uh, well, I, I live on, on uh, Lake Coeur d'Alene in North Idaho. I took my little uh, Mavic Pro drone and I flew it out and I took pictures of the lake with my house in the background and I took pictures of just the lake going straight down. And then I took a digital uh, version of the picture that you're looking at right now, all six of them, and gave it to my son who is a, who is a uh, uh, Photoshop uh, expert. And he took the airplanes out of this picture and pasted them into the ones with the Coeur d'Alene, Idaho background. And he also put them real close together, like like the uh, like the. Uh, let's see, let me see if I've got one here. Uh, well, I think you can see it on my website, but but they put them real close together in this close formation, as if they actually flew that close together. And of course, that's really a thrilling picture. But true, it's it's fake. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's Photoshop, right? 
he did a good job. I mean, each, each propeller blade, he actually did the fuzz and the, you know, it's just, it's, it, it is, is so good that you can't zoom in and see that it's photoshopped. Wow, that's uh, really amazing. So, uh, I, I can send you a, a, a copy of that. It's it's absolutely. But at so any rate, um, yeah, that's 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 uh, that's what was flying. Uh, uh, let's see other. Let's see. I had uh, had another home built. It's a solitaire, but it it's it it's so slow it wouldn't fit in that formation. <laughs> um, you mentioned another aircraft which has always been my favorite. Uh, and you mentioned it's yours as well at the beginning of the show. I want to talk about it just a little bit more. And that is, of course, the, the boomerang. Uh, uh, the, no, 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 no. My favorite one is Spaceship One. Oh. Uh, this, is a, this is my favorite general aviation airplane. Okay, fair enough. So the, the boomerang... It just oh, it blows my mind by its by its its, its view of a boomerang. Uh, the the other view shows it much better. <laughs> yes, it it there it, you go. it the beauty of it is in its, its asymmetry. In in its there's there's nothing I can imagine that is more out of the box, uh, Bert Rutan thinking than this aircraft. Just Would like you your shelves behind you. I, would you, would you believe it if I told you that this airplane flies symmetrically when it's important, when you're slow and have mid-control speed, and a Beechcraft Baron, which looks symmetric, is actually asymmetric. Mm. And the reason is when you fly slowly, you got your nose up like this, and the propeller blade coming down this side is going into the wind. And when the propeller blade comes around the other side, it goes with the wind. So that blade has more thrust for a few milliseconds when it's on one side and less when it's on the opposite side. Bottom line, the net result is the thrust line is not in the middle of the crankshaft of the engine. The thrust line is nine inches to the right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, this airplane, its CG is much closer to the fuselage than to the, to the boom and baggage uh, pod or that, that other uh, fuselage. Uh, but if you move both of those engines to the right, the airplane becomes symmetrical, whereas a Baron is asymmetrical. The Baron has a critical engine. It will depart from controlled flight and may kill you at a higher speed if one of the engines quits instead of the other one. And boomerang's not like that. Of course, a boomerang, the fact that you that you can fly it at full aft stick, absolutely minimum speed, where it where it kind of does a low uh, bucking like the long easy or defiant does when you're holding full aft stick. Pull that stick, feet on the floor, and you just fly it with your with your ailerons and elevator, and uh, absolutely no way to depart it. You 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 can uh, you can make a real steep turn into the dead engine, and it just does it. Do you remember where the where the do you remember having that idea, and what what kind of generated the the essence of the boomerang? 
Well, my, my task, uh, this was never intended for home building. It is far too complex of an airplane and expensive. You know, people complain that, that a used aircraft engine is, <laughs> is uh, uh, unaffordable. But here there's two turbocharged engines. So, you, you, you know, they're, uh, this is not a cheap airplane. Very, very expensive. Uh, uh, at any rate, um, I, uh, excuse me, what was the question again? About the, the essence of, of designing the boomerang and you said it was oh, a task. Oh, the configuration. So what I did, most of my flying time was in the Defiant, which is a relatively safe because it's a push-pull, but push-pull uh, has some huge disadvantages. Uh, there's a lot of propeller noise from the aft engine because it's going in and out. The propellers are going in and out of the wake of the wing. And so the propellers uh, blades are forced fore and aft every turn. And that mm. makes noise and it makes fatigue. And, and also if you don't have a nice closure like the back end of the boomerang here, where it's slender, it goes down to a slender end, you have a lot of what we call base drag. So the boomerang is is highly optimized for low aerodynamic drag. Uh, and I wanted to, I had a few ideas that I could make big improvements to my Defiant, the airplane where I had most of my fly, flying time in. And I tried to do everything that the Defiant didn't have. Uh, and there's absolute, absolute engine out safety for one. Uh, you know, a Defiant is like a Cessna 337 push-pull. A lot of times the accidents were because the pilot's taken off climbing over the trees and he loses an engine and it doesn't turn left or right because it loses it and he feathers the wrong engine, goes into the trees and kills everybody. Mm. Uh, so it's, it, you know, uh, this airplane, of course, doesn't have that. You don't have to identify the engine. In a normal twin, you play this game called dead foot, dead engine. In other words, if you're slamming on a rudder pedal to keep it straight, the foot that's dead, you know, the foot that's not on a rudder pedal is the side uh, where the engine failed. So mm. you, won't, you won't feather the, the other engine if you just think dead foot dead engine uh, but at any rate i wanted i wanted long range which is a safety thing you know the defiant has 1400 nautical miles range if you slow it down to its range which is a lot um, i know range of safety particularly for people that aren't instrument rated or airplanes that don't have na icing and so on and you go if you can go a long way around the weather and still get home um, that's a safety thing. Mm -hmm. You won't push the weather and uh, beyond your capabilities, which is a, uh, probably the biggest uh, fatality reason that general aviation airplanes uh, uh, have. Right. So I, I wanted another seat. I wanted a lot of baggage. Uh, the, the, the boomerang's five place, and the baggage area is all in that other, well, there's baggage area in the fuselage side, and there's also that, that whole other side, uh, it looks like just a slender fuselage, that's all baggage space. 
unpressurized bags. You can pull up two Cadillacs and empty both their trunks into a boomerang. <laughs> well, it's a it's a remarkable design that again that that just it's amazing that uh, um, that you came up with something that just defies symmetry and and yet it is symmetrical in in it in like you said in its in how it actually flies and because uh, of my heart health i lost my uh, ability to qualify for an airman's medical i mm-hmm. lost that in the 90s 98 and so i have not been legal as a pilot in command uh since 1998 uh I did discover something, and that is if you take uh, most airplanes and if you taxi them down the runway at a speed greater than the stall speed, Mm -hmm. and you go back on a stick, they'll actually fly without an airman's medical. Uh, so the the other thing, real quick, is well, I, uh, well, I didn't I, I didn't do a lot of that. The people that work for me uh, thought <laughs> it was too important to be going out and doing things like that. <laughs> uh, speaking of asymmetry, behind you is a bookshelf that uh, is quite intentionally at the angle that it's at, and yet um, and yet doesn't tell us about that. Because as long as we're talking about boomerangs and asymmetry, what what do you mean by the angle that it's at? <laughs> what, what angle are you talking about? Or you I, tilted so you don't need bookends? Exactly, exactly. What it is. Also, I measured all the books that I wanted there, and uh, which you know I, you hardly ever use paper books anymore. Uh, but uh, they um, they overlap also in a different way, so that so that you can actually get more books on that. And that part of the uh, on that that part, if you if you do it that way, I love but, that. Uh, well, to me, that's a conventional uh, that's a conventional bookcase. So, let's talk for a minute about when you decided to switch gears and start heading for high altitude. <clears throat> did it did it evolve? Through did it evolve through things like airplanes that fly real high? Is that yes? Like tell tell me, did you first go to higher altitude and then go to spaceship one? There's a program called Tier Two Plus, which was a uh, military requirement. Uh, Tier Two Plus went through all kinds of evolutions, and the net result of that is the Global Hawk. Now everybody knows what a global hawk is. It's it's that very long range, high altitude. It'll go on up above sixty thousand feet, reconnaissance airplane. And in those days, sixty thousand feet was above where the Russians could shoot it down. Mm-hmm. You no, know? and um, uh, so it was. Um, uh, you know, it had it had cameras that could give better resolutions than you get from satellites. I forgot exactly the uh, the years that we did tier two plus, but uh, um, uh, you could Google it and find out. What happened is there were six different companies that competed to build this thing. It was uh, going to be a huge program. Uh, you know, Global Hawk is a multi-billion-dollar program. Just the airplane, right? 
mm -hmm. uh, not even including the the payloads, the the cameras and so on. Uh, so everybody was, and when I say everybody, I'm talking about uh, aerospace primes. We're competing for it, and because it was easy for scaled composites to build lightweight, all graphite, all composite, high aspect ratio structures. And because scale composites had already demonstrated that they could do extremely efficient airplanes with high L over D, long range, and so on, uh, I ended up being on four of the six or seven proposals. Hmm. When I say being on, I'm talking about uh, uh, for the Martin, uh, Lockheed Martin proposal, mm -hmm. it was my configuration and we were to build the prototype. And it, yeah, it was unusual from the Global Hawk. Uh, it, was, uh, it was stealthy. Now, the government couldn't tell me why that that's not important to them. We found out much later that the, the, what they were doing to make a reconnaissance UAV stealthy uh, was uh, that C word, C word, it was classified. So they couldn't tell us that they're yeah. already working on that. So I thought, hey, this is gonna be a winner because it meets all the requirements for for it was so many hours, I think it was like 48 hours of endurance and long range, very, very long range. It had to go above 60,000 feet. Um, uh, so it, it couldn't get shot down. Um, but uh, okay, on the Northrop proposal, scaled composites was going to um, just build the prototype, but they would design the airplane. Mm -hmm. See what I'm getting at? Yes. And on the orbital sciences uh, proposal, it was my design and we were gonna build it. So two of them, Martin, Lockheed Martin and orbital sciences, which is now part of Northrop, um, that was a huge job for scaled. It would, it would put scaled in the, in the big times with military, uh, you know, military assets, expensive airplanes, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, the what i learned in designing something that would have that much payload that much range and could fly above sixty thousand feet uh i i learned uh, by the way there is a there is an outfit that went into some archive and published these tier two plus designs I don't know a link of it now. It's been it's been decades since I looked at it, but the you can actually find these 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 uh, four or five different uh, configurations, and one of them was was uh, well, they they picked the Teledyne Ryan one, and it was the one that that built the Global Hawk. Mm -hmm. Now the main reason that Northrop bought Teledyne Ryan is to get the Global Hawk. Right? Yeah. And, so what, and so what evolved to get to Proteus? Uh, well, here's the thing. I I knew by doing a lot of analysis and and performance uh, design, and uh, you know you had to know that you could build the, the light enough 
and you had to know exactly what the performance of the turbofan engines would be up in high altitude, which is very low thrust, above 60,000 feet. So you had an airplane that could fly with very little thrust. Um, I knew all of that uh, based on the work that I did to win uh, the tier two plus military uh, competitor. And knowing that, along came a, a little company called Angel, and they their plan was to get broadband on uh, excuse me is to get yeah broadband in major cities now this is before we had we is before we had uh, fiber in the ground and and you know households or small businesses and whatever didn't didn't have internet you know uh, so um, we designed for them an airplane that its mission would be, it would circle around in a, uh, you yeah, know, that's it. It'd circle around in a, I think it's an eight or nine mile radius or diameter circle. And it would fly for about 14 hours. And every 12 hours, another one would come up and join the circle and it would take over. And not shown on this picture, but there was a big dish underneath it that was tilted, and it was tilted so it'd be level when you're in this circle, okay? Mm. And also, I had I couldn't have any of the airplane in the way of the signal, so the the uh, to get the flying qualities right, I I could put the wing mostly in the way, but the wing tips had to go down. Now the Proteus has a carbon fiber left wing tip and a fiberglass and um, uh, what's the other material? Um, uh, quartz, fiberglass and quartz, right wing tip. There's no fuel out there in these wing tips. So that would give me just one little piece of one wing that was mostly transparent in the way because you can't have people every few minutes when you go around this eight mile circle get an interruption. <laughs> the bottom line, it was, it was gonna provide uh, this, having two of these airplanes, and of course the pilots, you know, they, would, they, they have to fly for 12 hours. And oh, oh, why is it piloted? Well, in those days, this is before uh, uh, Global Hawk, uh, in those days, uh, it was felt that it would be you'd have to go away from the big cities because if it failed like uavs failed very often in the early days and it goes down it's it's going to be into downtown la or a school or whatever you know it's just too dangerous if it's a manned airplane well they do it all the time so there's no issue about safety and it crashing in downtown los angeles okay so therefore it had to be manned it had to be two place because I wanted uh, one of the pilots to uh, rest or sleep uh, and the other guy uh, being the pilot in command. Uh, now, wow. I also had a bunch of other things that Proteus could do. And one of the things is it could put, oh, by the way, keep in mind, it was designed with the knowledge that I had from tier two plus, okay but right. it was a totally different mission. This was not reconnaissance. This was getting broadband to, to the masses. 
Um, the um, uh, other things that it could do, and I, I listed, uh, maybe you can see that on the internet by, by, by looking at early things. Uh, Wyman Gordon's website uh, might still have it. Uh, one of the requirements it could do is keep in mind, I was at Edwards during uh, most of the X-15 flying, mm -hmm. where, where uh, Mike Adams, not Mike Adams, but uh, uh, Joe, Joe Walker actually flew above 100 kilometers on two consecutive flights in 1963, and he was an official astronaut. Now the Air Force said, oh, if you go to 50 miles, that's good enough, we'll make you an astronaut. So there's about eight or nine X-15 pilots. And by the way, it flew 99 flights uh, 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 between, I think it was like 64 and uh, uh, either late 70s or early, early eight, excuse me, late 60s or early uh, 70s. Um, it, um, I could, I could, with this size of an airplane, it could be the mothership for a single place rocket that could be launched at 60,000 feet and it could go above 100 kilometers and it could come down and it would have, it would complete the mission that Spaceship One did. Now, Spaceship One original design was not, didn't have a wing. It had feathers that open up all around it. It looked like a badminton shuttlecock. Hmm. That's why when this airplane changes configuration for entry, we call it feathered. Well, that doesn't make sense. There's no feathers on it, but the feathers on a badminton shuttlecock are actual feathers from birds, right? So at any rate, that's where the, the, the genesis of that, of that word feathered reentry is. Uh, Anyway, it was going to be uh, um, picked up by my neighbor's uh, Huey helicopter. He was my next door neighbor at, at Mojave. He had a he had a he had, he had gotten one out of Davis Month and uh, uh, Huey, uh, you know, Vietnam Air helicopter, and it would go onto a parachute, and he had he would tow this grappling thing, and he would grab a hold of the parachute pick it up and bring it back and land it gently right at our front door in our hangar. So that would be its recovery and so on. Um, probably the simplest way of doing it. Spaceship One was a much more demanding thing to, to do a Mach 3 airplane and uh, that, that would have the right stability and control for all of these Mach numbers and uh, yet be, be a nice real low landing speed. Um, it, it was a simple thing. But one of my employees, while I was designing this, he came in and I, I showed him what I'm doing. Uh, by the way, I didn't show it to all my employees because they, they thought I was crazy to, to uh, be designing a spaceship when the fastest airplane we ever had was the Triumph, which is Mach 0.77. Now I'm here sketching up something that's got to go to 100 kilometers altitude and uh, 63 miles and has to go Mach 3. Uh, you know, that's, that's enough that, hey, Bert's off his rocker. Don't, don't, don't tell him he'll get mad, you know. <laughs> uh, but 
uh, one of my employees come in and says, Bert, uh, why, are you, why are you doing that? We're an airplane company. Put a wing on it. Let's land on a runway. And based on what Corey Bird told me, he, he later, by the way, he doesn't have a, uh, he doesn't have a college degree. He later was president of Scaled and just retired a year or two ago. Uh, and um, uh, based on a little bit of encouragement from him, I, I decided, yeah, we'll, we'll do a, a winged thing. <clears throat> and I didn't want to just build a composite X-15. I wanted something with very low uh, ballistic coefficient. Think of throwing, X-15 is throwing a bullet at the atmosphere. The spaceship one is like throwing a feather at the atmosphere. See what I'm getting at? It slows yeah. down higher up where the atmosphere gradient is less. So the amount of G's that you see, the amount of heating that you get on reentry, and um, you know the spaceship one can go straight into the into the atmosphere, right? There's there's no bad angle that'll make it dangerous. X15 had to go at 40 degrees on re-entry. And by the way, since you're flying a parabola, your, your boost is at 40 degrees up. So you go around a parabola and you come back into the atmosphere, now you're at minus 40 degrees, right? If an X-15 went to space by going straight up and it came straight down, it would be destroyed. Hmm. Much, much too much, uh, um, uh, structural loads and heating and uh, all kinds of problems. So they had to fly it very carefully. Spaceship One, my goal was that you could fly the boost and then put it in feather while you're in space and then break out your lunch and have lunch and let the airplane re-enter. Even though it has no electronic flight controls, doesn't even have a yaw damper, its flight controls are the same as a J3 Cub. You've got cables or push rods to the ailerons uh, or elevons and uh, rudders. And uh, it had electric trim so that it could be controlled when the dynamic pressure was high going through transonics. But as it turns out, um, unlike what uh, Chuck Yeager had on, on, on his breaking the sound barrier, uh, he had to have electric control of the uh, of the, of the stabilizer um, in order to be able to control it. Well, Spaceship One, you had electric control of yaw and roll, and it was, it was, um, it was nothing more than, than a uh, uh, electric actuator that moved the whole stabilizer, and the hmm. elevator on the back is what's hooked to your stick. Okay, so transonic, you had to trim the whole works because you can't move, you can't move the elevator. Uh, high Q and the center pressure way forward. You, you could pull real hard and little would happen. Uh, so as it turns out, um, as you get to higher Mach numbers, yeah, the, what we call the hinge moment coefficient, the coefficient that tells you how hard it's gonna be to, to uh, pull stick back and move the elevator? Well, that coefficient stays very high. However, when you're flying out of the atmosphere, now your dynamic pressure or what 
pilots would think of as indicated speed, right? Indicated speed's real low. In fact, when the rocket burns out on a spaceship one, indicated speed's only about 50 or 60 knots. Wow. Now, I don't care what the coefficient is, hinge moment coefficient, but if you're at 50 knots, you can move the elevator. You see what I'm getting at? Yes. So it's a, it's a real unusual design. A lot of people think it's just a normal airplane, but there's, there's a lot of, uh, of things that are unusual about it. And, and the only, you know, I've done several patents. Uh, normally they're, they, they're, the customer wanted it patent. I, I, I didn't, I, I patent the Grizzly flaps and a couple of other things, but the only patent that I ever made any money on was a feathering of Spaceship uh, One, and Richard Branson bought the use, uh, non-exclusive use of the feathering concept. Uh, and uh, we were able to build Spaceship Two after after he uh, paid some money to to be able to use, uh, there it is, yeah. Uh, spaceship Two is very much like Spaceship One, except the wings on the bottom. And uh, the wing is, uh, there's first of all, there's a, there's a rocket motor in there. There's a, the, the, the solid part of the rocket motor. And I had to put the spar either above it or below it. I thought the biggest risk was gonna be flying qualities for the feathered reentry. And um, by getting the wing above it, I got a lot more directional stability and pitch stability during reentry. So I did that knowing that it would have too much dihedral effect. Uh, dihedral effect means uh, that that if if you have yaw, the airplane ro uh, could roll in the wrong direction, or and and the spaceship one, for example, during boost, it, you you control roll mostly with the rudder pedals, not with the stick. So things are very different, but but they wanted uh, Richard Branson wanted his uh, Virgin Atlantic airline pilots to be able to fly spaceships. <laughs> And so the Spaceship Two had to be a very conventional uh, flying airplane. When I say conventional, not, not, uh, not helped with digital flight controls, like the X-15 is totally unstable, but it feels stable. Uh, spaceship Two even does not have a yaw damper. Wow. It's, it's a manually controlled with electric trim for transonic um, uh, airplane. And I'm kind of proud to have, have done that. Um, I think it's the, uh, well, yeah, I, I'm talking too much. Let's. Not at all. That's why you're here. <laughs> well, the, the list of, of aircraft are just remarkable. Um, you mentioned the, the, you mentioned things like the Grizzly, um, uh, I mean, there's there's just so many just to run through for people that want to do more research. We've got quite a few people, of course, that want to know if there's any news on the ski gull. Uh, anything to say on that? Uh, before I answer that, let me point out, I, I started to say something and then forgot to earlier, uh, maybe about 43 minutes ago, um, uh, when when I said that that those two flights, the Voyager and Spaceship One space flights, is what I'm known for, but the, probably history will show the more important thing is that we did 49 different 
types of research airplanes. Um, during the 80s and 90s, with a little bit of help from Rutan Aircraft Factory, uh, you know, for example, a boomerang is in there and, and uh, maybe one other airplane. With what, Rutan Aircraft Factory and Scale Composites were two companies on the Mojave Airport. We had a first flight on an average of one every eight and a half months of a new type, not just a new airplane. That's new amazing. And of course, the most exciting thing you can do on an airport is to uh, witness the first flight of a new type. It's not That's exciting for the pilot. He's too busy to be excited. But, but when you go out on a ramp uh, and everybody goes out for the flight, first flight of a new type, especially the very big, and they thought I was going to buy the farm uh, trying to fly that thing. Uh, but it's, anyway, okay, you, you're insisting amazing. on talking about Skeagol. Tell you what, um, I, am, I am not embarrassed by the fact that it's a failure. Um, I made some big mistakes on the hydrodynamics. I tried to do something very different. I tried to have a long stroke, flexible carbon fiber skis so that it could handle rough water. Hmm. My wife has a little amphibian, a, um, a uh, super patrol is made in, in, uh, in um, Brazil. If the top to bottom of the waves is more than nine inches, you're not allowed to fly it hmm. off the water. Well, I unlike uh, the, unlike the uh, what is that um, icon, uh, which yeah. about the same class, hundred horsepower. Yeah. Uh, unlike that, it doesn't split the belly open if you fly it off <laughs> <in laughs> water. But it's it is a it's a real hard ride. It scares it scares her to 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 uh, uh, land in rough water. Um, the uh, I don't know whether you, you realize, but but the most well known amphibian, of course, is the Catalina, the PBY. Okay. If you look at any PBY and look at its logbooks, it very rarely lands in salt water because it damages the aluminum. Oh, did not and know that. Also, what is surprising, that huge airplane, the maximum uh, wave height that it's where, where you're legal. I mean, uh, obviously, in emergency, they'll put it in any, any kind of water. But if you're going to go and do a routine landing um, uh, in water, the maximum wave height is two and a half feet. Oh, and that huge you know that. was that enormous aircraft. People, people, uh, if you if you're uh, the first time you fly in a seaplane, okay, you are shocked at how much it bangs. You know, because water is like concrete, mm. and we're told when you're learning to fly a seaplane, look out in front. If that's concrete, would you land in it without <laughs> breaking your landing gear? Uh, you know, if it's a land plane, uh, if it's smoother to where yeah it's going to be hard on the gear but i'll do it uh that's that's kind of what you think about now with small amphibians what they do is they go into uh into harbors or or 
uh, fjords or, you know, uh, upwind or, you know, where you have protection of the wind. So right. you, do, you don't go out here and land. She doesn't go out and land her uh, amphibian just in the middle of the lake unless it's really calm. Right. She goes and hugs the, the shore, at which it's smooth. Well, your your designs are all there. Every one of them is a success in what you learn from it. And, well, and what, what I was what, starting to get to is this subject of uh, the subject of a um, of of using flexible water skis. See, there's no shock absorption on on a float plane mm. or a seaplane. You, in a landing gear, you got a, you know about that that much uh, stroke on the landing gear plus some on the tire. Uh, it's it's solid. Uh, you know they don't have shock absorbers on the. Uh, I don't know why, but they don't have shock absorbers on the on the floats, mm. um, or on the on the belly, of course. So I wanted I wanted a good uh, three feet of stroke, because I wanted to be able to go into an ocean swell. Uh, Skegel is all all the metal parts, unless they're line replaceable units, are not aluminum. They're titanium. Wow. So I found I couldn't even drill a hole in titanium, but I've got a neighbor who is the smartest guy in the world, and he has a one-man shop, and he can make anything out of titanium like it's butter. So he he built all of the uh, all of the uh, parts that that are metal, you know, mainly landing gear and stuff. The flight controls of Skegel are all carbon fiber. There's there's no aluminum in it. Wow. Uh, the stick and the yoke and the torque tube and the push rods and whatever. Well, it has it has stainless steel cables, but but uh, no, it's 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 no. It, I'll tell you, it's really it's real cheap and easy to build flight controls if it's aluminum. You go to Aircraft Spruce and you get the right size tube and you drill a hole in and put a bolt in it. I couldn't <laughs> couldn't do that. I had to filament wine carbon tow to to make an assured bond and so on so it was a here's here's a story uh, i made some big hydrodynamic mistakes uh, i was hard-nosed thinking this is going to work and uh, the experts told me that nah, that's that that's probably not going to work and i said well that's what everybody says about my airplanes right i didn't listen to them but anyway i spent six years uh, uh, actually, almost seven, if you include a full-scale hydrodynamic uh, test I did out in front of a speedboat of just the lower part of the airplane. Um, and uh, I, the airplane was heavier than the test that I did, and I made the mistake of saying it's linear. Like, for example, the hydrodynamic drag if the airplane's 20% higher than, uh, excuse me, 20% heavier, uh, that I'd have 20% more hydrodynamic drag. Seems logical. But my design of it, which is, uh, it's actually a trimaran, uh, uh, the, the whole uh, floats 40% of the airplane and then there's 20 and 20 on each side. It's actually trimaran. Um, uh, the mistake I made uh, is if I if I tell that in detail, you'll need another hour. But the bottom line, the the mistake I made 
uh, I tried to do simple fixes. And I did that over and over again for years. It, it, I, I, six and a half, maybe seven years of my retirement, I wasted on that damn airplane. <laughs> and and uh, what I have, it's got the world's most efficient general aviation engine, the fuel-injected uh, Rotax. It's actually a motor glider, very long wings. And uh, uh, if your gross weight over the span squared is less than three kilograms per square meter, not area, square meter, you usually think of area, but span times span. If that's less than three, then you can license it as a motor glider. Hmm. And I was gonna license it as a motor glider. And literally on the day the guy was coming up to license it, you know how the FAA comes in and looks at it and can't find anything wrong. So he says, yeah, experimental amateur built, okay. Uh, I realized, well, wait a minute, if I did that, you'd have to have a glider rating to fly it. <laughs> I don't know anybody in North Idaho has a glider rating, and there's all kinds of people that have seaplane ratings. And so I thought, well, shoot, I'm, I'm going to just do experimental amateur built and not do motor glider, which also let me operate it heavier. But bottom line is, is I worked very hard in 2015 and 2019. I'm talking about just burnout like hard to mm. get to Oshkosh in both of those years and failed. I wasn't gonna go to Oshkosh unless I could operate off, off the water. Mm. So I have, a, I have a very long range, lots of baggage, two place airplane, that can't operate off of water. Anybody wants an airplane like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, there. Uh, I mean, it, it's just another step in in so many uh, amazing aircraft, whether they meet their mission or whether they don't. And uh, but, by the way, uh, uh, don't jump on it because you think uh, you want just a long range airplane that has considerably more range than your long easy. Uh, to get that range, you got to fly real slow. <laughs> and in zero wind, which you'd be crazy to to do it in zero wind, but in zero wind, your your flight from uh, from Oakland uh, to Hawaiian Islands is more than twenty hours. Wow. Wow. Well, before we go, I just want to show everyone, I mean, go to BurtRutan.com to take take a look at, there's so much out there. There's so many different aircraft and the stories go on and on from the pond racer that we've got here. There's just so, so many things. Uh, I love this one, the Aries, the mud fighter, you know, that looks like an A-10 the, the type aircraft that you did. Of course you were, uh, deeply, deeply, deeply involved in in the in in what you did with at the beginning of the VLJ era with uh, Vantage and the VJet, um, things like like that. There's just so many things, and you mentioned also the Grizzly, 
which we always see at at Air Venture. I mean, there is well, no you, end. First of all, first of all, Brab is free. You don't have to buy it like you did a book. Uh, if you go there, I think the document that shows the best pictures of all 49 of them and the uh, date of first flight, the performance, uh, it's just, there's there's 49 slides uh, wow. in a, it's I think it's PowerPoint or PDF, and uh, you can look at all of them in detail. Just so that's BertRutan.com and B-R-A-B, Brab, is on the site. You can click on it. You can get all the information so that people can go and follow this and get, get so much more information about it. It's about one of the chapters, and the, there's 90 chapters in Brab, uh, and only, uh, I think, eight or, eight or nine of them are, are published so far. Truly amazing. Well, Bert, thank you for everything that you've done for general aviation and thank you for taking the time to join us here on Social Flight Live and tell is, some of these is that stories. All you've got? <laughs> I thought this was gonna take at least two hours. We'll get you back. How about that? <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Well again go ahead. Well, First of all, it's unusual that I do these. I mean, I, I was shocked to find my brother had done it twice and I hadn't even heard of it. Uh, He's coming I, back I, number two. I generally, uh, I, used to, I used to give talks all over the world because they wanted to pay me a fortune to do it after Spaceship One and after Voyager. But um, I, I made a uh, decision, um, particularly after I gave up on Skeagol, that, uh, I want to I want to not be stressed out. I want to retire and enjoy retirement. I love it when people come here and visit me. We can sit, look at the lake and chat and and uh when they do, I turn on a little app called Just Push Record and it makes a transcript and an audio of the interview. I've done 95 interviews now. Uh just did one a few days ago. Um and uh, I love that visit, but it's, I don't like to travel anymore. You know, that, that yeah. uh, I, I had to, to do this bucket list uh, uh, excursion that I did uh, all of September, I, where I went to Scotland, Iceland, Greenland, Canada, and ended up in New York. Um, that, that was something that I had to do. Uh, uh, it was my last chance to do it, essentially. You know, I'm I'm 80. I I've had very poor heart health. Uh, my sense of balance and my strength is 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 way down. Mm. So um, I may be talked into doing another Zoom thing, but but uh, when people say, "Hey, come here and give a talk," and I say, "Nope, not doing it anymore. I I want to enjoy my retirement." Well, I don't, I don't blame you at all. But again, I, I am grateful that you've taken the time to come and share some of these stories with us. It, it is, I'm an enormous fan. I love the aircraft that you've designed and, and they're just, it's just spectacular. So I, I really encourage everyone out there to go to BertRutan.com, check out everything that you've published there, which more and more is going to be added to, as you mentioned, because this is the best way. There's no, there's no paper book. This is the way to do it. 
is to go online and see this amazing life's work. And of course, if you have time, go to the Smithsonian and see all of your work that's hanging there, uh, whether it's the Smithsonian, the EAA Museum, or other places. Um, it, it's truly fantastic. So thank you. You bet. Well, uh, um, I will be also doing something I've never done before, and that is uh, uh, putting out drawings of all 401 airplanes. And this is a list, I put model numbers on it. Uh, uh, 401 airplanes I've done three views of, written down what the specs are, and maybe who the customer is or whatever, and maybe there's not a customer, but it's, it, it, it's just a half page sketch. If I do that, I put a model number on it and I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to uh, have a chapter to, to show all 400 of those eventually in Brab. That now, would be I, I have an argument with, with Scaled, who's owned by Northrop now, and they have lawyers, and they say, oh no, you can't do that because that's uh, intellectual property of all these customers. You can't publish it. Uh, well, uh, like I can't do something to show the Starship when Beechcraft doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Right, but I also I found that that when you get real old, your give a shit factor goes way down. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see that as well. That's fantastic. That would be just like a sketchbook of dreams. Actually, that all you gotta do at, at Brab, I hate to keep. It's like I'm selling something, but I don't make a penny on it. But but first thing, look at the table of contents. Mm-hmm. And it's arranged in nine or nine or ten, I think it's nine sections. And each section has a number of chapters. Okay. And I have published in there uh, that you can read the section summaries, which gives you an idea of what's gonna be in all these chapters of this section. Right. For example, there was a, there's a section on early life. There's a section in the Air Force uh, during Vietnam. There's a section of all home builds, and that includes Beatty, actually, and a section on scale composites uh, up until when I retired in 2011. Uh, I don't like to, uh, I, won't, I won't put out details on what they did after I retired because uh, I don't have the same visibility, uh, obviously, and I, I don't want to be like a lot of people out there that guess what's going on and try to write about it. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Right. So I'll let somebody else write about scale composites after 2011. That makes sense. Well, again, now, it's... Strato Launch, the world's largest airplane, happened a few months, uh, got a customer a few months after I retired. But before that, I spent 21 years doing preliminary designs uh, for a large airplane that would launch orbital boosters, okay? And and uh, I was uh, hired by the customer after I retired, uh, Paul Allen, uh, to be on the board of Strato Launch. Mm. So since I did interface as a board member, uh, uh, you know, a board member would go to board meetings, and if he didn't like something, he'd take out his dick and pee on it, right? 
or just telling me you're crazy, you know, that's too high risk. And I, I was known for doing that. But but bottom line, because I had that interface, I, I do have a chapter on Stratolodge. Excellent. Well, that, that again, to everyone who's interested, it's BertRutan.com. And then on the site, you'll see B-R-A-B, uh, uh, Brab, and that is where all of this information is there. So again, Bert, thank you so much for your time. I'm grateful. And thank you so much for everything you've done for general aviation. It's, uh, it's remarkable. And uh, I'm truly in awe of your work and, and a huge fan. So thank you. Okay. You bet. Thank you, Jeff. Have a great evening. Okay. And to all of you, thank you for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We are off next week with NBAA happening out in Las Vegas and lots of content that'll be coming from there. And then back on Tuesday, October 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern time with David Copeland of Technum Aircraft. Going to learn about those amazing aircraft. We spent quite a bit of time with Technum when we were out at Air Venture, and I have to tell you, I was blown away. It is just, it, they're just so finely crafted and so cutting edge compared to so many other general aviation aircraft out there. It is amazing. We're going to get the inside story on Technum from David next uh, on the 24th. Then we're off for the Halloween uh, holiday and back on Tuesday, November 7th at 8 p.m. with aviation filmmaker Adam White of Hemlock Films. His films are remarkable as well as series. If you've seen um, the Restorers series or Red Tail Reborn and so many other things, um, it, it's just really great. So looking forward to having Adam on the show as well. Until next time, thank you all for joining us here on Social Flight Live and for everything you do for general aviation. And I wish you all blue skies.